So it's all here. The story of our time with the Barkov. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has played host to the biggest names and best minds of our day who have helped to tell the story of our times through candid, revealing conversations with the Barkov. This podcast delivers them straight to you. Welcome to With the Barkov. I'm Mark Updegrove. Bakari Sellers became the youngest African-American elected official in 2006 when he was sworn into the South Carolina legislature at age 22. Currently a contributor to CNN, his new book, My Vanishing Country, a memoir, looks at the rural black America in which he grew up and how it has changed adversely over time as he recounts his own life and his quest for racial equity. We began our conversation by talking about his state of mind in the wake of the national uprisings around the murder of George Floyd. Bakari Sellers, welcome to With the Bark Off. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you reached out and I'm, I'm excited to be here with you today. Well, we, we talked to you during a very dark chapter in the American story. What are your thoughts right now? So I want people to realize that this is not just about George Floyd. This is not just about Breonna Taylor or Maude Aubrey. Um, but this is about systemic justice, injustice and systemic racism we have that's pervasive in this country. And I think that um, this was just too much to bear, um, whether or not it's um, COVID-19 that's killing a, um, a large number of people of color, black people in this country, or whether or not it's the um, violence perpetuated by law enforcement we're seeing with our own eyes. Um, that that was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. And so while I don't agree with the, the rioting and the looting and the burning of cars, et cetera, um, I do have to say that I understand it um, to channel what Martin Luther King Jr. said, rioting is the language of the unheard. And, um, you know, we, when you look at this through its proper context, um, it started with people taking a knee um, and the president of the United States calling them sons of bitches um, and their voices weren't heard. And so now it's, it's simply, um, it's simply at a point where people want concrete solutions and they want their plight to change and their daily load to be softened. Um, unfortunately, right now we're just at an absence of um, leadership that has the necessary traits um, such as compassion such as empathy. I mean, we're, we're really, the, the reason we're here is because we're a country that's absent empathy. And when you don't have that, um, you can't tether together. You can't, you can't, the fibers of your being, they just, if you can't put yourself in someone else's shoes, then this, so, then a social experiment doesn't work. Um, and that's where we are today. Why is there an absence of empathy in your view? I mean, there, there, there are a lot of reasons. Um, I think leadership from the top is one. Um, I think never, ever, ever addressing the issue of race in this country. You know, uniquely, and I know we'll get to my book, but one of the things that I write about in my vanishing country, one of the things that I, I try to do um, is that most white folk in this country look at race through the lens of their lifetime. Right. And so if you're 40 years old, you only look at race through the prism of that 40 years. Mm. Um, but for many of us, like for myself, I still feel the pain of Emmett Till. 
And so when you have and to draw a complete nexus for you, when you have a case like Amy Cooper with the birder in, the, in New York Park, I don't look at Amy Cooper as just Amy Cooper. It's just some white woman utilizing her privilege. I look at her as Carolyn Bryant, who's the white woman who alleged that Emmett Till whistled at her and that she was trying to get into heaven on her deathbed, finally confessed that she was lying. Right. I think about Jimmy Lee Jackson. I think about Medgar Evers. I mean, I, in my book, I, I, said, I, I talk about my father's experience so much because my father was shot by law enforcement February 8th, 1968, 52 years ago on the campus of South Carolina State protesting um, in what's called the Orangeburg Massacre. Three were killed, Henry Smith, Samuel Hammond, and Delano Middleton. And here we are again. And I, I can't help but to believe when you don't have... Black folk in this country, we always have to be in a position where we forgive. Like, when are you going to forgive the murderers of George Floyd? Or when are you going to forgive? For me personally, it was the question was always asked to me, when are you going to forgive Dylan Roof? I'm like, this dude just walked into a church and killed nine people, many of which I knew on the most one of the most sacred days in our community, because every black person I know on Wednesday night, that, that's church night. Right. Mm. And I have to, so we're in a position to forgive even before we walk through the necessary necessary steps to to get there. And so that's what our country has to do. Um, when black folk read this book, they'll get a sense of pride. And when white folk read this book, they'll get a sense of understanding. And that's what we got to have. Like We got to have understanding. We have to have empathy. And then once we can get the get those things, then we can get to the most crucial part of this, which is seeing the benefit of one's humanity. Because there's no one who can tell me that those cops saw George Floyd as being human. They saw him as being less than. I mean, you and I sitting here, my honest to God, could you put your knee on someone's neck for eight minutes while they're handcuffed? That another human being, in like three and a half of those minutes, they be unconscious? I mean, you wouldn't do that to a dog. I mean, yeah, let alone a human being. And so I can't help but to believe, like in that case or Ahmaud Arbery or anything else, that, um, you know, black folk just don't get the benefit of their humanity. And so we have to have this conversation. And the reason that we're absent empathy and all of these other things is because no one's had the audacity to have the conversation that you and I are having today. I mean, I guess that's why I'm excited to be here with you today, because you're willing to at least jump in head first. Bakar, you, you talked about the straws that break the camel's back, and there have been many. And, and you mentioned one of them, Jimmy Lee Jackson, but there's Rodney King, there's Trayvon Martin. Yeah. Now there's George Floyd. Why does the back keep getting broken? Why don't things change? What is the single thing that's keeping us from reform that will prevent this from happening in the future? You know, people always say, um, people always say, do we need to see the video? And then people want to say, let me, I, I am going to disabuse some people of their notions right now. And they're like, oh man, we just see them now. That's the difference, right? But you know, that's not the case mm. because in 1955, what did we all see? Emmett Till's face. We all saw that picture. And anybody who hasn't seen that picture, who's listening to this show right now, put it on pause and go to Google, put Emmett Till funeral into your Google bar and look at the image of his face. His mother had so much strength that she had an open casket so the world could see what racism, bigotry, and xenophobia had done to her son. We saw the images of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Bloody Sunday. We saw skulls get cracked by police batons, right? So we, we, have, seen, we have seen these things. 
And it's not the visual necessarily that breaks us. It's the Fannie Lou Hamer. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired that breaks us. You know, you can't you can't continue to treat a group of people as if they're not free in a free society, but so long. And, um, you know, I am so impressed by Carson Wentz. Mm. I'm so impressed by Taylor Swift. I'm a Swifty. I think red was better than 1989. I firmly <laughs> do. Like, right. I just, that's my personal opinion. Now that might be the most, I don't think that's the most controversial thing I'll say during this interview, but it might be. I'm a Swifty. I am so pleased. And this is even more controversial. I, I absolutely deplore Clemson football. Can't stand it. I'm a big Gamecock fan, South Carolina Gamecock fan. Mm-hmm. But Trevor Lawrence, the number one prospect coming out of college, number one quarterback in the country came out and, 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 and talked about his teammates you know, and talked about being there and having their back. And so we're beginning to see it now. And as things are changing in this country, but when you have images in front of the White House like you had um, and the, the emergence of cable news back to why are we at this point? You know, the 24 hour news cycle doesn't doesn't necessarily help. And I'm on CNN, you know, sure. um, I love my network and we do we, we attempt to do brilliant work. Um, I love Anderson and, and Don and. Um, Cuomo and and Aaron and and all of the all of the crew, um, especially John Berman is one of my good friends. Oh, I taught a class at the University of Chicago. I'm, I'm rambling now, but hopefully somebody gets something out of it. I taught a class at the University of Chicago and um, for David Axelrod, and I made my class um, one week watch Morning Joe, one week watch New Day, mm. one week watch Fox and Friends. I had them confused. They literally thought that they were living in three different worlds. They had no, and I call them my little Range Rover babies. I mean, you know, it's the University of Chicago. So it's a different, uh, it's a different atmosphere up there. And they were literally just kind of dumbfounded by the news they were consuming. And, you know, nobody escapes it. My mom sends me, my mom sends me articles off Facebook. And I'm like, mom, first, I'm in the news. Stop sending me news from Facebook. Um, you know, she sent me an article back in 2016. It was like from CBS.co. So it wasn't a real website. It was one of those, but it, it went viral and went around and it said they found Hillary Clinton's fake ballots in Ohio. And she was so mad. She called me. She said, man, if Hillary going to cheat, make sure she doesn't get caught. I was, like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, mom, stop, please. But you just have this news cycle that goes on and on and on. And people only go out and want to reinforce New or get news that reinforces the, the, the beliefs they already have. Bakari, what is the biggest factor in the rise in racism that we've seen in the past several years? I don't think we've seen a rise in racism in the past several years. I think that we have, I think that um, we, I think racism's always been there. And, and let me be extremely clear. I talk a lot about Stokely Carmichael because I was, that's like my uncle. Um, my, my father and him were roommates at Howard. One of your and sons is named after my, my son is named after Stokely. So don't call it too loud because he will interrupt this broadcast. Uh, and Stokely, Stokely graduated from Howard, but then dropped out of my, my convinced my father to drop out of Howard and to join SNCC. Right. And so um, Stokely defined racism as this. He said, if you want to lynch me, that's your problem. But if you have the power to lynch me, that's my problem. See, racism is not someone calling you nigger. 
racism is a power in social construct. It's about systemic issues, not ignorant, sensationalized rhetoric. Okay. And so we've had these, these systems of injustice for a long period of time. The difference though is this, and let me take you to Charlottesville. What do you believe to be the most amazing in, or I guess the moment that had you the most awestruck about Charlottesville, it wasn't that they were chanting blood and soil or Jews shall not replace us. It wasn't that they were chanting nigger and all this other stuff. The most awesome thing was that they didn't wear masks or hoods. See, the difference between racism today and racism of yesterday is that the leadership we have today has made it okay to take off your mask. And so now it's emboldened, right? And people are more, people are more emboldened with what they say and, and, and the things they do. Um, that they don't have to wear masks. And the most amazing part about Charlottesville is those people are loan officers. They are in the school system. They are teacher's assistants. They literally are. They were out there marching um, for <laughs> true unadulterated racism. And they're in the systems of our everyday life. These are not people who were just in their grandmother's basement eating spaghetti off their stomach. Right. This is like these are real. These are real people who were part of the systems that I'm talking about. Your father knew not only Stokely Carmichael, he knew Julian Bond and Martin Luther King and some of the other great leaders of the movement, uh, whose names we know. Why hasn't there been a unifying African-American leader to lead a movement uh, current day? Because my father would also tell you, and one of the things I wrote about in um, My Vanishing Country is that even that movement didn't have a unifying leader. Mm. Um, like I, I think this country and even a lot of black folk have a Messiah complex. Now we have to whisper when we say that because we're debunking a lot of theories out here, but everybody wants to wait on the next great Martin Luther King Jr. And everybody wants to wait on Malcolm and they want another Barack Obama, but that's not how we got changed. We got changed from Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer. We got changed from John Foreman, um, James Foreman, excuse me. We got changed from Bob Moses and Kathleen Cleaver and Cleveland Sellers. Um, you know, John Lewis, um, you know, it, it was all of, it wasn't a unified leader. It was SELC, SNCC, CORE, the Black Panther Party, Stokely. Um, you know, it was all of these people and they pushed people to do more. I mean, there's this, you know, my, my father is sitting on a, my father and John Lewis are sitting on a sofa um, across from LBJ after he signed the Civil Rights Act. Um, you know, we, we have those images. We have the images of my my father actually um, sitting with uh, Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael and Elijah Muhammad. My, one of my favorite images from the movement is when you had Jim Brown, you had um, uh, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, and other, they're sitting there and you have that level. And now you have you have like LeBron James right now, who literally is the most powerful athlete in the world. And it's amazing how it works because LeBron now is stepping out and stepping out. So who now has a statement out last week, this week? Michael Jordan has a statement out. Hmm. Who else has a statement? It was weak sauce, but Tiger Woods has a statement. So it's not just one unified leader. I, I think that's a, I think that's a messiah complex that we feed into a lot. And I, one of the lines that I wrote, I, when you write a book and you go back and read it, sometimes you you write and you you read and you're like, Damn, that was good. That was a good <laughs> right there. So I, I wrote a line. I was talking about what my father taught us. And he said, heroes walk among us because he never wanted my family to think that it was just Martin, Malcolm and Rosa. He wanted us to lift up those other voices, those people who, you know, Emmett Till just and he always said this always. 
Emmett Till was the body that we found. But that Emmett Till represented so many other black bodies that are still in the bottom of the Mississippi today. And, you know, you know, we're sitting here and I've been I've been thinking everybody asked me and they, they think it's so difficult to get involved. And I'm like, think about Andrew Goodman. Think about Mickey Schwerner. Right. They paid the ultimate price so that I could be here and be free and vote. You know, they died with James Cheney. You know, they 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 were found in a Levine. So it's not a it's not a one person. It's not a unifying person. It's a it's a collection of people of like minds and, and good hearts. But let me respectfully challenge that Martin Luther King comes out of Montgomery after having led a successful boycott of the bus system. Uh, he forms the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, becomes Times Man of the Year in 1963, wins the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. And it seems to me, Bakari, he coalesced a movement around nonviolence that was subscribed to by Diane Nash and John Lewis and some of the soldiers of the movement. So what you have in a national leader is somebody who brings people together. They're not necessarily uniting, but they do bring people together. Where is that presence in America today? So... I mean, I, I hear you. And I also want to make because I don't disagree with your point, but I feel as if it's necessary to add, add a caveat since the world will be listening sure. to this conversation. The last Gallup poll of Martin Luther King Jr. was done in 1964, I believe. It might have been 66, but I think it was 64. Um, and he, of course, he died April 4th of 68. And in that in that Gallup poll, he had a 32 percent approval rating. And I want people to know that Donald Trump's approval rating, it stays hovering between 40 and 48 percent. So Donald Trump, even today at this moment, has a higher approval rating than the last Gallup poll of Martin Luther King Jr. And I, I want to frame that perspective because people like to whitewash Dr. King and also don't remember him as a revolutionary, which he was. Right. Remember, he when he died, he was literally with sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. To answer your question, though, who is that person? Um, I think and I even I would say no one. OK. And I even wrote about Barack Obama. And I'm interested to hear his response to this because I'm sure I will hear it. He's never been one to shy away from his feelings. Um, I wrote how tepid he was on issues of Black Lives Matter. And how he attempted to stick his toe in, but got blamed anyway. So I was like, "You, there's no such thing as being halfway pregnant. Either you are or you're not, right? So you might as well jump all the way in. And he never did. So I, I think that you were missing, there is a void to be filled. But to quote Thomas Friedman, like the world is flat now. It's a totally different time. Um, and so with the world being flat, as you hear my, my twins right now. Um, sorry, some, I think that's Stokely. He's a little upset. Oh, that's Sadie upset right now. So we are all sheltering at home. Everybody can relate to what you're going through. Yes. <laughs> uh, but to quote Thomas Friedman, the world is flat now. All right. And I'm not talking about like Kyrie Irving, the world is flat. I mean, like the world is flat due to inter- due to the way that we're interconnected. And so I, I don't, I think it's a lot more difficult for us to have a Dr. King like presence today. Um, because of social media, because of the interconnectivity and the, and the way that we go about our daily lives. You you alluded to the soldiers of the movement being the real heroes. I like the way you frame that. That's 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 good framing. Well, I think there are, there are a lot of people who want to be people who are not of color, who, who want to make a contribution right now. Yes, yes. So many friends of mine have called me and, and asked, what can we do? So I would ask you, what big and small things 
can people do to stop this tide of racism that holds us back as a nation? So the first thing I think people have to understand, and, and I'm glad you asked that question, is it's not on black folk to fix racism in this country. It's not, right? But there, in certain, and I've, re- I've had to learn this. I'm only 35 years old. So and everybody who's listening to this, please, if you disagree, I, I wholeheartedly understand. I'm, I'm still learning this, this life that I've been given to, to make it the most valuable that I can. But I also understand that I've learned that I'm always not the right messenger. And sometimes you will be a better messenger than I. And there are conversations that you have to begin to have with your white friends. There are messages that we have to begin to have. And you have two choices today. You can either be racist or anti-racist. It's not good enough for you to sit at home and say, I'm not racist, but right. You actually have to be someone who's actively rooting it out. So if you want to march with the protesters, I say march, right? With the sun up. I don't believe in... My father and I had this theory. You don't protest when the sun's down because he got shot at night. And he always says that people do things under the cover of darkness they wouldn't otherwise do. So, like, I'm not asking anybody to do something that I wouldn't do. But if you want to protest, let me tell you why you standing out there with us matters. Because when the media sees the images of black and brown and white and yellow and pink marching hand in hand together, that is valuable. Right. That shows that we're coming together, that we're beginning, beginning the, he- the healing process. Write op-ed pieces to your local newspapers, telling them how you feel, you know, as a white man or white woman in today's America. Even if you're just saying that I'm outraged, I'm outraged about the death of Ahmaud Arbery. I'm outraged about the death of Breonna Taylor. I'm outraged about George Floyd and say, I want justice, but I also want peace. Like you can't leave out the last part. Right. You can't leave out the first part. You can't leave out the last part. Right. And so we have to begin to do this. Donate to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Now, the NAACP and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund are two different things. But donate to the Legal Defense Fund, who's actually doing the work to reconstruct these uh, systems of oppression that we have in this country. You know, reach out to some of your local elected officials who are who are black and say, you know, I, you might not vote for them. You might not have voted for them. Ask them what's going on in their communities. Like, how can I how can I lend a hand to your community? Because what it, what they may say is, man, look, I got an elementary school over here and we don't have a lot of light shined on this elementary school. But it's it's you know, for me, if, if I say it's 80 percent free and reduced lunch in South Carolina, that's low. Right. You know, if it's 90 percent free and reduced lunch, that sounds more like home for me. But it may be like 70, 75 free and reduced lunch. And yeah, you're a banker or you are, you know, you, you have a great career. Why don't you come over and read to these kids? Because they literally have never seen a white professional in there and they think that they that they're not loved. Right. So just just show them that you love them and that you care enough to spend 30 minutes with them. You know, we can be active participants in this. It's not a whole it's not a whole lot. I man. go in, go in these communities out here um, and register people to vote like the community next to yours. It doesn't have to be your community. Go to the community next to yours and register people to vote. I mean, there, there's so much we can do um, that, that doesn't require us necessarily putting on our Superman cape and being a hero, but building the fabric of our community from the ground up. You, you write, Bakari, in your wonderful book, My Vanishing Country, uh, about your life being bookended in tragedy. Uh, both of which you've alluded to in this conversation. Talk about those tragedies and how they have shaped you. 
So the Orangeburg Massacre um, is the most important day of my life, and I talk about it being such. And it's it weighs on me heavily for, for two reasons. And it's not because my father was shot. My father was shot and he had on these high water pants and he had on his trench coat and he had a sling when they brought him out what they, they called the jail, the pink castle. And he had on these converse, these Chuck, Chuck Taylors on his feet and his pants were so small. We still give him hell about that today. Like what, how are you, how are you protesting in jeans that don't even come down to your ankles right there? And he has this smile on his face and you ask him, you ask him like, why were you smiling? And he was like, Bakari, because it was so absurd. He was like, here I am. I'm shot. They come and get me from the hospital and they charge him with five felony counts <laughs> looking at a maximum of 75 years in prison. They deny his bond. And then they house him on death row while his bond is denied. But it's not that that bothers me. I mean, I, I think about the Henry Smith, Samuel Hammond and Delano Middleton who were killed. None of them were older than 19. And, and I live for them. But that's not the thing that weighs on me the most. I think the thing that weighs on me the most is that as a country, we've just forgotten about it. Like we don't even care to write about it in the history books. Mm. Like the blood of my family literally runs through the soil of this great country. And people have the audacity to question whether or not I love America. <laughs> like, like, like WTF, like really, like, come on, let's, let's find some, let's find some actual humanity here. So that, that's what, that's what bothers me first. Like the fact that we know Kent state, we even know Jackson state. I mean, the kids at Kent state were white, but still we, we know Kent state, we know Jackson, but People don't know Orangeburg and that that bothers me the most. And I write about that. It also bothers me the toil that I see it play on my father, you know, just growing up in the house with my dad. You see that he he's he's emotional like I am. We, we cry a lot. We're criers. We both are. Um, but his eyes don't really pop like they used to because he shed so many tears and his shoulders aren't as upright. And to visibly see someone who has sacrificed for this country so much. Um, just that toil, that burden of forever being called the scapegoat or being blamed for being the scapegoat for that night. And then you fast forward to Charleston. I was right around the corner. I talk about it in my book. I literally was right around the corner with Hillary Clinton when that happened. And Clem was a friend of mine. Clem was a state senator where I was in the state house and I was the youngest black elected official in the country or whatever. I don't know whatever people say in books and stuff and, and write about me. 22 years old. Yeah, I was 22 when I got elected. And when I got elected, he, he also was the youngest state senator to be elected. He was 25, not, not, a, not when I was 22, but he was 25 when he got elected. So he gave me a lot of advice. Um, and Clem went out the way that, that I would think he would. And, and let me explain that. A straggly white boy walks to your door. Let's say a straggly white boy walks to the door with a backpack behind you right now. Are you going to let that boy in your house? Like, I don't think so. Right. Like I, Clem let them in. He let him in the church. They never seen this boy before in his life. Let him in the church. They sat in a circle for Bible study because it was only like 12 of them set in a circle in the basement. And do you know where they set the straggly white boy, Dylan Roof? Clem set him right beside him so that they could pray with him. And they spent an entire hour in Bible study. And then as they were saying their prayer and Clem bowed his head, he was shot in the neck with an um, 45. 
uh, Clem actually made it to that. He was the only person who was shot who made it to the hospital. He fought till his last breath. He made it to the hospital alive. I don't know if anybody knows that. So forgive me for forgive me, Jennifer, for telling people that portion of that. But I think people need to know how strong he was. Right. He fought to the end. And so um, you ask how it affects me. My father is 75 today and I'm 35. And we have many of the same shared experiences and it should not be that way. No, I'm just saying I want to change that for my little Stokely and my little Sadie. What do you mean by the title of your book, My Vanishing Country? So it's twofold. Um, the first is growing up in the poor rural South. We used to have a, we used to be a bastion for economic, upward economic mobility. Small businesses were flourishing. You had the textile plants and companies. Um, uh, you know, we had schools that had so much pride. Um, we had railroad tracks that went north, south, east, and west. And I'm not sure how valuable listeners know that is, but in my small town, because we had railroad tracks that went north, south, east, and west, um, we were one of the, we were like, we were bustling, right? The railroad tracks were pulled up, CAFTA and NAFTA rode in and all the textile mills closed. Um, we live in a court of shame. Um, schools, so schools are falling apart. And all the small businesses, which are the backbone of this great country we live in, are, are, are you know, boarded. I, I grew up in a food desert now, which went, what, what once used to be, you know, a great American town. I, it's a food desert now, which means you can't go two or three miles and get fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, the court of shame is where kids go to school and their heating and air don't work. Their infrastructure is falling apart. The politics of the day have made have talked about the fact that we don't expand Medicaid. So, you know, hospitals like mine closed down. So you can't, don't have access to quality care. The water's not clean. So you're drinking um, dirty water and you overlay that with a pandemic. Right? <laughs> you have all of these systems of injustice and in a pandemic. And there's no question why people are dying. But I, I, I laid that out and said that my country, that country, not, not just the United States of America, but like the country, the country boy I, I am is vanishing. And then when you look at the macro view, not just life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but I don't know if you still believe in words like this, but I'm not yet jaded by reality. I don't want to be presumptuous, but I still believe in like hope and love and truth and justice and peace. I mean, I hope you don't laugh at me for believing in those things. And I believe in those things for my children, but those things for poor people, for black people, for immigrants in this country with this leadership um, appear to be vanishing before our eyes. You can't tell me there's no one who can tell me that's why this title is like, is really freaking me out how like I might've hit something like a nail on head with this book at this time. It's funny too. Cause I had to write this book really fast and people are like, people, I wrote it in like four to five months and I had to write it fast because there is a very big book coming out at the end of the year um, by Barack Obama. Right? Mm -hmm. it, it, like, do you <laughs> You can't have a book out with Barack Obama. <laughs> People go, they're going to spend their $30 on Barack Obama, right? Um, and But you never want your book to come out during the middle of a pandemic either. Um, in my vanishing country, um, just this week, we saw the president of the United States use the military and tear gas against peaceful protesters so that he could take a picture. I'm Episcopalian, too. So it made me mad on two fronts. <laughs> So I'm wondering, you make a distinction between racial equality and racial equity. Yeah. What's the difference? So, like, I, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of equity, right? 
Um, and the best thing I, the, the best way to describe it to you is um, if you if you have three individuals of different heights who are standing behind the fence. I think we've all seen this picture before, but if we hadn't, let me describe it. If you have one that's six feet, if you have one that's five ten, and you have one that's five five, right? And equality is we all give them the same size box. Well, guess what? The one who's five five still can't see over the fence. Mm. The one that's five ten can barely see over the fence, and the one who's six feet still has the advantage. But equity means that we make sure that all of them have the same view, right? Now, what they do with that view, I'm not, I always tell people, I am, I can't make you dance. I just want us to all be on the dance floor together, right? Mm. Like, I don't know if you're going to be able to do the shag, which is a big Southern thing that we need to teach you how to do when you come to South Carolina. Like, I don't know if you can do the shag, but I want to make sure that you can at least get on the dance floor. Like, I don't know. I, I want my kids to be a success. My job is to make sure that they are successful. Like our job collectively is to make sure they have opportunity. You talked about hope and optimism. And I think those are qualities that are not distinctly American, but they're, they're, they're part of the American uh, spirit. Is there any way of reviving rural black America? Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I have so many ideas, but like we can invest in infrastructure, you know, and that's not really a sexy idea. That's me being a legislator again and me talking policy with you. <laughs> but imagine if we like have a couple trillion dollar investment in the infrastructure. Like that's bipartisan too. And we uh, we rebuild the water systems in this country. We rebuild the old roads and bridges in this country. We do things like connect with um, high speed railway um, places like uh, Charlotte and, and Atlanta, Georgia. Um, you know, just just think about it. and who's going to build those things. You know, a lot of a lot of people are going to build those things with their hands. And imagine this is when I talk about the fact that we have race specific problems in this country. But Democrats and Republicans like to propose race neutral solutions under this theory that rising tides lift all boats. That's BS. That that's really bad policy. That's not the case. But let's say we have an infrastructure bill that's a trillion or two trillion dollars or whatever it is. And I say, I want you to do 10 percent of that with minority owned businesses. You're already lifting up people. Right. Mm. And then the other 90 percent, I need you to make sure that they at least have hiring practices where they hire those businesses, hire 20, 25 percent minority. Right. People who can actually do the work. And then what happens is you not only have a good program where we are rebuilding our country's infrastructure, what we do the best in the world. We're hiring people, giving them jobs because 40 million are unemployed. We're giving them really good jobs. We're empowering minority businesses. Right. And then because we have to create a new workforce, you'll have these companies because they need more minority workers. They're going to partner with HBCUs. They're going to get new engineers. Right. They're going to invest in STEM, STEM technology programs in inner city Detroit, in Chicago, so that they can create this pipeline of engineering. I mean, that's just one idea I had. Like, I don't know why Nancy and Mitch can't get in a room and figure that out. Like, I know I, I feel like I know how to reform our policing program in a very bipartisan fashion. I think we need a national database for policing. Like, did you know, right now, if you're a police officer and you get fired in your hometown, all you got to do is go two towns down and they can hire you. Right. There's no national database. There's no national use of force guidelines or standards. Let's do that. Why, why can't we do that? You know, let's let's limit qualified immunity and let's lower the standard. And this is this is not even controversial, but let's lower the standard because right now it's it's astronomically high. Let's lower the standard to bring federal 
criminal cases against law enforcement officers. What's wrong with that? We're only prosecuting bad officers. Good cops should want that too. So these are just, I mean, these are just ideas that I, that, that I've had about how we revive. You talked about how we re- revive the poor rural black South. That's one way. I mean, you can, we can invest, you know, we just spent billions and billions and trillions of dollars. What happens if we gave a billion dollars to farmers in this country or $10 billion to farmers in this country and let them apply and make sure 10, 15% of that, 20% of that goes to black farmers and Hispanic farmers and native American farmers. I mean, just think about how we could cultivate new hemp products, right? Think about how we could be on the front edge and cutting edge of new technology. I don't know. I just think that there's so much we can do and people, people, it's people live with stop signs in their brains. Like they don't, they are always afraid to be forward thinking. Like, let's do this. Let's, let's revive, let's revive this country. Let's create a new paradigm. You are very candid in your book about the fact that you suffer from depression. Anxiety. Anxiety. Well, are the, are the two synonymous? No, medically they're not. So, so they're not. Anxiety is what is what they call it, irrational fear. Um, mm. And it's not it's not necessarily paralyzing, although it can be. Um, but I do talk about the fact that I f- that I fear death um, and I fear failure. It's kind of one and the same, but I don't want to die before I can make my parents proud. That's like really heavy for your listeners. I hope y'all are drinking Jameson after this episode. They're probably gonna be like, "Man, we got it. We we need to take a nap after listening to this this episode." But you know, I those are my fears. Um, I talk about the reason why in the book. I don't want to give it all away, but I talk about how I, that you know your childhood sense of inevitability or invincibility it, it faded from me pretty quickly. Um, and those are my fears that I live with on a daily basis, but I use them. I, I actually say anxiety and then the subtitle is a black man's superpower because particularly black men don't like, we think the only, um, person we can talk to is our barber. We don't really talk to people with letters behind their names. Right. Why is that? What, why is that? You, you talk about this too. It's, 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 it's a, it's a tough <laughs> Oh, here we go. The, the, the people in my mentions after they listen to this, it's a toxic masculinity, right? It's just so pervasive. Um, it's also why a large portion of, of African-American men, not large, but more African-American men than should have voted for Donald Trump. It's a toxic masculinity that breeds some misogyny that breeds this false sense of what manhood is. It's not weakness to, um, I was on with, um, Iyanla Van Zant, who knows this better than anybody. And I, um, I, I, the way that I referred to it was that sometimes I get stuck in my head and you start, you start to build these, this fear, um, and things that could go wrong, possible go wrong, et cetera. And you get stuck in your head. And she referred to it as being in your head without adult supervision, which is so, you know, which is so, it's, it's such a better way to put it. Um, but you know, I found cool people to talk to, man. I talked to Tyler Perry. I talked to, to TD Jakes. Um, I talked to Steve, Stephen Furtick. Who, you know, you know, who would be great on your show in the future? Mm. A conversation with T.D. Jakes and Stephen Furtick together. Yeah. To kind of get a, you know, I, I'm so I'm so angry right now because I I'm ang- like I have a range of emotions at this moment when I'm interviewing with you. I'm angry and I'm not angry with Donald Trump. Right. I, I haven't been angry at Donald Trump ever because I don't have any expectation for him. Right. He. You don't change 70 year old men 
black, white, or indifferent. You just don't. They are who they are, right? They're going to be who they are forever. But I'm so angry at like evangelicals who just sit on their hands and don't say anything. Well, has the black church changed? The yes. black church was the foundation of the civil rights movement. Where's the black church today? It's not enough TDs. It's not enough William Barber. William Barber is also a hell of a guest. I don't know if you had him, but he's a, he's a great guest for your show. Um, there's not enough. There's not enough people who are teaching how to. They're not teaching ministry in the streets outside of the parameters of their church. It's all about. I mean, it's capitalistic, which I love capitalism. Don't get me wrong, but it's all about who can um, but have the most branches, who can become a major, make a church the quickest, who can have the most fireworks in their service. Um, so I, it, it used to be a center of of progressive change. Mm-hmm. That's why they bombed it. Um, that's why it was always a target. Like black church. Well, I mean, I can't say that because Dylan Roof literally just went and, and murdered nine people in a church. But it's not the same type of progressive, ideological, um, active um, bastion of civil rights that it used to be. You talked about the fact that you're feeling anger now during this, uh, as I mentioned earlier, dark chapter that we're facing. But I hear in your voice hope and optimism. Where does that come from? Well, I refuse to that. I, you know, black folk in this country, when they came here 400 years ago last year, were stripped of everything. And so that's why we have uh, that's why this book is so like on a mic on a very macro level personal to me, because you know, we came from a people of storytellers and, you know, we would always tell our story and pass it down and different, different cultures do the same thing. But in our culture, we would always pass those stories down. And so for me, this is pretty cool because I have an image of, of me as a six-year-old. And so little black boys get to pick it up, right. And see their reflection, which is pretty cool to me. And then they also just get to read my story and we get to pass those, those stories down. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful because I'm thinking about those 400 years and we've never let people take away our stories. We've never let people take away our hope. We never let people take away our faith, even as strangers in a foreign land. Right. We always had hope. We always had faith. And now I have kids and I have a 15 year old who uh, if anybody wants to come pick her up, let me know. (laughs) Um, We're going through being 15 and quarantined, which is a lot. She can now get a permit. And it's kind of wild. I don't know what to tell her about this time. I mean, other than the truth, she's asking a lot of questions. So I just try to be truthful with her. But as she's getting her permit, I have to have a conversation with her that you probably don't necessarily have to have with your kids about, you know, how to interact with law enforcement and what happens if they have their own Amy Cooper who wants them to leave. When I, I, like, I let my daughter go down with her friends, not now, but used to walk around the little outdoor shopping center up there. And, you know, I don't want anybody to think that they're, you know, a part of a, all girls, you know, Taylor Swift and Beyonce listening to gang. I don't know. Um, so we're going to have a conversation. Um, and we are having that conversation, but I, I look at them and I just realize that they don't deserve to live in this America. So I'm hopeful and I'm intentional and I'm purposeful that I'm going to work as hard as I can to make sure that, um, we build a more perfect union. And, and fundamentally you ask why I'm hopeful is, um, is ironic. I'm talking to you now because I'm going to quote, Um, Abraham Lincoln in saying that I believe in the better angels of our nature and I think that that's that's a good place to be This is a sad time in our nation and I want to thank our guest Bakari Sellers for shedding light 
on the challenges on race that we continue to face. I also want to thank our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and you for joining us. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.